in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'm not asking you to do this, but if I, if I would uh, ask you to close your eyes and imagine yourself in your mind's eye, like looking over your life, how, do you, how would you view yourself if you did that? You know, are you uh, a nice person to be around? Um, are you pleasant? Are you successful? Do you view yourself as successful? Do you view yourself as powerful? Or do people like you? Are you lazy? Are you procrastinate? Um, are you considerate? Are you kind? Are you rude? Are you dishonest? Are you just one of the lemmings, you know, kind of dropping off the cliff every, every morning, going to work, coming home? going to sleep, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, just repeating life over and over again with no real excitement or purpose in your life. Uh, Tony Robbins, motivational speaker, not a guy I'm really a a fan of, probably a nice guy, I'm not saying that he's a jerk or something like that, but I just don't buy into all that stuff, right? But he says, whatever you hold in your mind on a consistent basis is exactly what you will experience in your life. Now, I take that to mean that how I view myself uh, dictates my reality, right? In other words, if, if I think of myself as successful, then I'm going to be successful. If I think of myself as a loser, then I'm going to be a loser. But, you know, the truth of the matter, is that really true? Is that really true? Well, yes and no. It, 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 there is some truth to it. You know, if I'm five foot four and I'm 125 pounds, you know, without an athletic bone in my body, there's no use in me visualizing myself as a nose guard for the Eagles. It's just not going to happen. I'm not going to play basketball. I'm not going to do things like that. It's just not going to be happening. It's going to be do me no good to visualize myself successful in those ways. Plenty of people in this world, and it seems more often than not, have failed dreams, right? Those who have imagined themselves successful in some way yet never have found that success in life. You know, somewhere around 40 years old, we all wake up and realize we're just regular people. (laughs) We're not special like everybody's told us our whole lives. But there is some truth to what Tony Robbins and these other guys say. Otherwise, he wouldn't make $30 million a year, although I'd caution how much you buy into his message. There's something about the fact that if I feel confident, then I present myself confidently. And if I feel self-conscious, then I don't come off as confident, right? But that's just common sense. I don't need somebody to pay somebody a lot of money to tell me that. That's kind of something you just understand as you grow older. But viewing yourself uh, in a right, healthy manner in line with what is true about you in Christ is a, is, a, is a helpful thing in life. It's a good thing. It's something that we want to do. And last week, we ended with Paul's view of himself in one way. When speaking of God, he said this. He said, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. It's a great statement. Because in Paul's mind's eye, he's this priest bringing the offering of the Gentiles before God. And we know that the priest entered the temple and he made these sacrifices for the people of Israel, right? And Paul's equating himself with this great high priest and the Gentile nations as the sacrifice which bring pleasure to Jesus. (coughs) And we know that self-image is important, right? (coughs) It's something that we want to have a good, we want to have a good self-image of ourselves. Uh, 
Tony Robbins and the other self-improvement gurus out there teach us to see yourself as something in order to sell yourself and, and, and be successful and move forward in life and all that kind of stuff. And Paul saw himself as a great priest of the gospel of Christ. That's the way Paul viewed himself. A great priest of the gospel of Christ bringing God's people to God as a living sacrifice to him. But it wasn't just a power of positive thinking for Paul, you know, some sort of a trick. This ministry was true of Paul. It was given to Paul by God himself. It was something that was true of him, that God claimed on him. So imagine if you viewed yourself with how Christ saw you, if you viewed yourself in a similar way, a priest, because we are a nation of priests, right? A kingdom of priests. A priest in service to Christ, introducing those who don't yet know him to the king of kings. Because a priest is a bridge builder between people and God. A mouthpiece of the word of God. A very mouthpiece of the, of the, of the divine word in life. And that's kind of exciting. So what if you felt that every mundane moment of your life reeked of divine importance? That every little thing in life was pregnant with Christ-like purpose and potential. Every little interaction. Last week I, I shared with you how I went to Lampung and I felt I didn't know anything when I got on the plane and I, until I realized how much God had really prepared me. God has prepared all of you. He has empowered all of you, all of us, for the work of the ministry. Last week we said, you know more about Jesus than you, you realize you know. Sorry, this is driving me crazy. People texting me. Well, don't call or text the pastor on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Judge you crazy. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you know, God has prepared all of us for the work of the ministry. He, we know more about Jesus than we think that we know. We put the work in. He's commanded us to be ready to give account of why we believe what we believe, why we have this hope in Christ. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And he's empowered us with the Holy Spirit. Even when we get ourselves into trouble and, and we don't know what to say, Mark 13, 11, this is an encouraging verse for me. Don't worry beforehand about what to say. Jesus, the Holy Spirit is within you. He's that close to you that he's going to work through you. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Isn't that encouraging that God would just speak right through you? They don't, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. But like C.S. Lewis said, and this is probably an overused quote in sermons, but I love it. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We trudge through life. Just far too easily pleased. Now that quote can be applied to the notion of salvation. However, I think it also can be applied to our Christian walk, right? So often we journey along not viewing ourselves or, or the plan that God has us in the, for us in the way that he would have us view it or view ourselves. We're distracted 
making mud pies in the slum when there's so much more joy out there to be had. There's so much more ministry to be done. It's like we've been playing video games in our parents' basement until we're 35 years old. You know, that's pretty sad. When all the while the adventurous world goes on out there, turns around out there outside of our doors. And we believe the lie that our video games bring more adventure to us than anything else we can experience in reality. And so we forego the joys of love and intimacy. We, we forego the glass of red wine because we're satisfied with Miller Lite in our parents' basement. That sucks. Miller Lite is not a good beer. I'm sorry. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Praise Jesus on that one, right? We exchange the light of the sun for the glow of our TV screen. And we certainly don't get close to living the risk which faith demands of us. Hudson Taylor used to say, unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, there's no need for faith. We all have first world problems, don't we? We really do. Kim and I were speaking this week, and we both agreed on this. It wasn't just Kim's thought. We both agreed on it that she said she's been praying for a heart of evangelism, that she's far too easily satisfied just to never really talk to people about Christ since it's much easier to go through life being liked. And there's a danger, there's a risk in bringing Jesus into a conversation because you may not be liked. You might piss somebody off. Excuse my French. To not ruffle feathers or, or to just, you know, to only do things which fit the cultural narrative of the moment, right? It's, it's just all too tempting. But Christ calls us to a witness, and that's what Paul's been talking to us about. In our experience of him, our life in Christ should fuel that fire to do so. You've heard me say before, and I'll say it again, that everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. You can't separate the two, right? Like non-spiritual and spiritual. Everything is spiritual. We used to say that in church a lot. We used to separate the two out. It's very platonic of us. But we are, we, it's, it's, everything is spiritual. And if we truly believe that, then keeping your house neat and loving your neighbor well becomes acts of worship, right? Going to work and walking next door to visit your neighbor become your mission field. Taking a walk and hearing the birds and is, is like listening to a choir, right? Giving to a need becomes an act of praise. A meal becomes an exaltation of God's providence in your life. Kissing and loving your wife, you know, well become sort of reflections of the church and its relationship to Jesus. It becomes more than just a marriage. A conversation becomes a prayer. It's like having that golden touch in life where everything you touch turns into something special, something divine, right? That's the way Christians should view life. Every interaction means something. Every interaction is spiritual. You are ambassadors of Christ. We are all ambassadors of Christ. And suddenly, if you see life that way, your life is filled with a greater purpose. A, a more grander purpose, and then you learn to speak of Jesus and, and, and He alone, what He has done in you and through you in life. Like Paul does in the next few verses, he says in verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. 
So Paul brags on what Christ has done through him in three things here. The Gentiles coming to faith, which is pretty important. The signs and miracles accompanied, that accompanied his ministry. And then also that he's preached the, the entire 1,400 miles from Jerusalem to Illyricum. It's a long way. Now that right now, in present day, that's up near Serbia, Croatia area. You know, it's very far from Jerusalem, and he did that in sandals, mind you. Not in like nice hiking shoes that I backpack in. So you've got to understand, 1,400 miles is almost the distance of the Pacific Coast Trail from Mexico to Canada. It's, it takes people from April, May or April to, all the way through October to hike that trail. It's 1,600 miles. It's a little more than half the Appalachian Trail, which is 2,200 miles long, spanning 14 states from Georgia to Maine. Kim and I backpacked the John Muir Trail this summer. It was only 240 miles. It took us almost three weeks. Paul was devoted to his calling. He took it places. The gospel changes people. When it truly gets into you and a hold of you, it becomes everything for you. Not just for you, but also for the others around you because they start to hear about Jesus. But also, Paul takes no credit for everything that he accomplished. That guy is like, he has infected the world, but he takes no credit for any of it. Christ did it through him. You know, people change when the gospel gets into them, don't they? John Wesley was an uptight intellectual pastor and missionary, you know, sort of the guy all by the rules and all that kind of stuff until he got scared in a storm from, on a ship from America to England where he noticed a bunch of Moravian Christians sort of peacefully praying throughout that trip, you know, in the face of death. And I've told this story many, many times. I'll tell it many times again because it's such a great story of conversion. When he returned to England, he wrote this. I went to America to convert the Indians. In other words, he was doing all the Christian stuff, right? But oh, who shall convert me? He was realizing that his faith meant nothing, right? Who, what is he that shall deliver me from the, this evil heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near. First world problems. But let death look me in the face, and my spirit is troubled. My faith has no value in the face of death. Nor can I say to die is gain. I show my faith by my works, by staking my all upon it. My works, my self-righteousness, right? Oh, who will deliver me from this fear of death? So he realized at that point in his, in, that his religion was based on his works, his intellect, what he could do to reach God, to look good in front of all of you and all of me and, and, and God himself, you know, all that kind of stuff, his self-righteousness instead of Christ-righteousness. It was a personal religion that served him well to com- comfort him. It, it was fine when nothing was wrong, but he had no use in great time of need. His religion was worthless, It was ethereal, it was unreal, it had no teeth, and it is exactly what Paul's been preaching against in Romans. Exactly. And that's not the faith we want. And back in England, he was invited to a Moravian gathering, and he wrote of the experience, and still, even though he's having these drawings in his heart, he's still unwilling to go. He says, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preference to the Epistle to the Romans. He was studying Romans, right? That's fitting. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
Have you, do you remember that time when you first met Christ and your heart, I mean, there was something just jumping out of your chest, right? I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. See, this is where it came from here to here. It started to infect his whole being, right? Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He was changed. It, this was his conversion experience. This, even after he was a pastor and missionary, he was still converted at this point. It changed him, everything. His preaching, his priorities, everything changed about John Wesley at that point. Over the next 50 years, he rode horseback 250,000 miles across that countryside, preaching more than 42,000 sermons on salvation by faith alone. And he published more than 233 books. I didn't publish one. His sermons were no longer that strict Methodist teaching of intellectualism, but now they were filled with the grace and the love of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the, the notions of forgiveness and recon, reconciliation to God. He changed. When he was refused a pulpit at his own dead father's church for lack of acceptance of his message, he promptly went out to the graveyard and he stood on his father's tombstone and he preached eight full nights on salvation by grace. Standing on his father's tombstone. That's awesome. And afterwards, he went home and he told his mom, and his mom died with a smile on her face, they say. And at age 86, now remember, this is the time of horses and crap, right? <laughs> at, 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 at the age of 86, he preached 100 sermons in 60 towns in nine weeks. And he didn't only preach, he involved himself in legal and prison reform, he, the abolition of slavery, civil rights, and popular education. And his last act was to, to write a, a letter to William Wilberforce, who was fighting in Parliament for, to abolish slavery. He did a lot of work, all for Jesus. And the gospel was centrally important to Paul and people like John Wesley, and both would only give credit to Christ for all that was done through them. I stand in awe of such great men of faith. I feel like I haven't done anything when I read these things. Some of these guys have done so much, but all credit is always given to Christ. Maybe they know something that we don't. Maybe it was more about Jesus in their lives, that there is more than this, just this financial motivation in the world, that true, deep, passionate accomplishment of great things comes through Christ's purposes worked out through us. Maybe there's something more than just trudging to work every day, right? See, I'm more like the little leaguer who put all his 60 pounds, you know, into a swing, and I barely connect with the ball, and the ball dribbles out to the pitcher, and through a series of fumbles and errors and overthrows, I somehow get to home plate, and I score, and what do I say? That's the first home run I've ever hit in my whole life, right? I didn't hit a home run. It was errors that got me home. We step up to the plate for Jesus and we barely tip the ball and he arranges us for, for us to get all the way to the home plate and, but we take all the credit, don't we? Not Paul and not John Wesley. Not these guys. If Paul had been somebody else, he would have been insufferable 
insufferable. He had a lot to brag about, being stoned almost to death and then getting up and walking back into the city, right? Walking 1,400 miles just in this one trip to preach the gospel, imprisoned, shipwrecked, all kinds of things. John Wesley, 250,000 miles on a horseback, 233 books, 100 sermons in 60 towns in nine weeks at 86 years old. That takes devotion. But we have to remember that credit goes to the empowerment of Christ in them. Something was driving these men. They didn't see these things as something to brag about. Rather, this was simply life in Christ for them. This is how you did it. This, the most important thing came out of them. Paul made it very clear to the Galatians. He said, may I never boast except that of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He told the Colossians, Christ is the center and the firstborn from, from, among, all, from, the, from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The supremacy in my life, in your life, in everything. Christ was simply everything to him. And that's why he saw the need to take the message to places even unknown. Verse 20 of chapter 15 in Romans. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. Paul's heart... (coughs) was to take the gospel to every single corner of the globe. He broke open the doors to to the gospel to the Gentiles, right? To all nations, to, to all people groups. Notice Illyricum was all the way up where we see Serbia and Croatia right now, very far from Jerusalem. He was taking the gospel to the Gentile people groups all the way up there who had never heard of Jesus. He's much like C.T. Studd who said, some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. Like right near the church where it's always safe, right? I wish to run a rescue mission within the yard of hell. C.T. Studd did a lot. Paul, we can say, had a specific calling on his life. We can't really compare ourselves to Pauline people in the world, right? He had a specific calling in his life. However, he's also made it clear to us that throughout all his writings that this is also a corporate sort of general call over the church to reach the nations throughout the scriptures. It is. It's our job as a body of Christ to reach the nations with the gospel. In all this rhetoric about unreached people groups that we've been talking about here in the study of Romans, it could almost feel like another church planted in America is not needed or that what we're doing locally is not that important, that we should be focusing all of our efforts on the unreached people groups of the world and nothing on the stuff right here. That if you're not a missionary going to the unreached, then you're not really living the gospel. But I would not say that that's true, however. I would not say that that's true at all. We are called to be both about all the nations of the world but also about our own neighbors. That's why our community groups and our kingdom opportunities in this neighborhood are very, very important to us as a church. That's why your your friendships and your work relationships are people that we should be sharing with. 
For instance, if we plant a church in an unreached people group, we hope that they grow and that they start to evangelize their own people. Paul expected the same thing for the church in Rome or in Corinth or in Philippi or whatever. The church is always called to evangelize its own neighbors, its own people. And sometimes churches become outdated and irrelevant and myopic and they need to die off and they need to be reborn in order to have further impact in a community. So church planting in America is still needed, I believe. It's still needed everywhere. But the issue is that there is a great imbalance in the work going on among unreached people groups and also a great lack of biblical understanding in in the church of our call to reach them. For instance, 81% of the world Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists don't even personally know a Christian. They don't even have a relationship with a Christian at all. 81%. 87% of our giving goes to work already in already Christian people groups. 12% of our money goes to people groups within the reach of the gospel but have decided not yet to respond to it. 1% of our money goes to work among unreached people groups. Remember, 16,500 people groups in the world, and there's 7,000 that are unreached. That's 42% of the, of the world's population. It's 40% of the world's people groups, and our 1% of our money goes to reaching them. That's a great imbalance. For Muslims alone, there are about 3,500 people groups in the world. 2,900 of those are unreached people groups for the gospel. David Platt rightly said, a soft drink company, namely Coke, has done a better job at getting brown sugar water into the nations than the Church of Jesus Christ has done in getting the gospel to them. And I could add that we've been around a lot longer I think McDonald's, if I'm not mistaken, at one point had wanted to have a restaurant within 10, 10 minutes of every person on the earth or something like that. Gosh, what if we had the same plan for the church? I remember while in, in Indonesia, when we were serving there, I became painfully aware that local, uh, the local church in Bandar Lampung, the city which we lived in, which was made up of Javanese and Christian, or Chinese Christians, had no desire whatsoever to evangelize their Muslim Lampungese neighbors. This was the Lampung province. They were the visitors there. They were the people that moved in. They were the trans-migrants. This was the Lampungese province, right? But they did not want to reach those Lampungese Muslims at all. As a matter of fact, they vehemently opposed that, that, that effort at all in many cases. And that was due to fear of what Muslims would do if they approached them with the gospel. A very real, well-founded fear for all Christians across the Muslim world, by the way. Since reprisals for evangelistic efforts are often swift and violent. Thousands of churches had been burned in Indonesia. Thousands of Christians killed and abused in horrific ways. But the call on the church is to deny ourselves, to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies, to be self-sacrificial, to not react in fear, but to react in faith. That's hard to do sometimes. And that's why for the Christian church, we want to be, we want to welcome the foreigner. We want to open our arms, despite the very real threat that some of them would have nefarious intent towards us. 
We love our enemies. We want to bless those who curse us. That's scripture. And we want to bind up the brokenhearted and we want to feed the poor. And even if it all means risk for us, we don't care. Because like Jesus said on the cross, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. We serve a God who raises the dead. What fear do we have? I want to live a life that's worthy of, for something that's worthy of my dying for, and that is Jesus. I was blessed to meet a man this week. I'll call him Jim for security reasons. I'm sure he wouldn't want me to use his name. But he is a Syrian-born Christian, and he heads up an organization which oversees and partners with 30 churches in Syria. And he travels back and forth there quite often to encourage and to train and to provide for their needs in this frontline ministry, right? And as you can imagine, after all that has happened in Syria in recent times and with Christians being murdered or run out of Dodge, right? There may be little desire in the Christian heart or the Christian churches there to reach their Muslim neighbors with the gospel. And Jim felt that they needed uh, some encouragement, so he put together this big gathering of churches in Damascus. They all gathered in this big building and, and led by their pastors, you know, and, and thousands of Syrian Christians flooded in, gathering and praying Korean style. If you've ever been a missionary, you'll know what Korean style is. It's sort of like everybody gets in the room and the pastor says, all right, let's pray. And everybody just, just goes nuts. <laughs> it's like they, go, they get really worked up and they, they rock back and forth and they scream out and, they, and everybody's praying over top of each other. It's just, it's like, ah, it's deafening, right? The first time I ever experienced it, I'm like, what's wrong with everybody, right? But that's Korean style, you know? So you imagine thousands and thousands of Syrian Christians in this big building just screaming prayers out, Right? And then one pastor gets to the microphone, so he's a little louder than everybody else, and he starts praying for the Muslim neighbors. He starts praying that, and, and everybody, one by one, they start falling silent as he's praying. And he went on for a very long, uncomfortable, and awkward five minutes, and when somebody's praying for five minutes, that, that's kind of long, Right? And, he's, and it's an awkward, long five minutes, and he's praying, and he's interceding for the salvation and the blessing upon the same people who have instilled such fear in their hearts and killed so many of their family members. Slowly, slowly over time, though, people started to understand. They started to understand that they are Christians, that they are Christians. They are called to a higher standard. They are called to forgive. They are called to love their enemies. They are called to pray for those who persecute them. And they slowly began to join in until the whole place was filled with a cacophony of voices interceding for the Syrian Muslim world. They were developing right there at that moment a heart for the nations as they swam in the middle of the nations. Not building just on the Christian sort of foundation that they had had. They weren't just praying for themselves. Like Jesus, when he was mad at the temple and overturned the tables, he was mad because they were just taking care of themselves. They weren't taking care of all the nations coming through there. They weren't praying for those people groups and loving those people groups. 
but they were taking the gospel to places that Christ was not yet known. Jim also reports that many, many, many Muslims in, in Syria are now leaving Islam because they are disillusioned and they are choosing agnosticism over, or atheism since they see what Islam has been doing and, and, and how it has been hurting and subjugating and killing people. If you want to talk to me about that, talk to me about it. But it has been. But many are coming into the church right now in Syria to explore what it means to be a Christian, to follow Christ, to follow this guy who died for them and loves them and all that kind of stuff. And the problem is that 60% of Christians have fled Israel, or Syria and the remaining 40% have a real hard time fielding all the people, all the interest in Christ. 6-8 was planted since at the time there was no place for a t-shirt-wearing, shorts-wearing sort of person like myself with dreadlocks or whatever it is, uh, who had never really experienced high church liturgy, could go on the main line. We were the first one like this church on the main line, I believe. And we were seeking to reach a forgotten crowd of people out there. And I think we've done well at that. And as we continue to do so, we also want to extend that reach out to the unreached world in prayer and in giving and encouragement and sending people and in all kinds of ways. We don't just want to build on somebody else's foundation. We hope that those who were not told about him will see and, we, and those who have not heard will understand. So let's continually work and pray towards that end. Some sermons don't have a practical application other than pray about this. So let's do that. Father, we thank you that you are, you, you set us in a, hist, in a moment of history with a great cloud of witnesses. And we can look back and we can pinpoint these people, these, these stories of people that have given their lives. Stanley Albert Dale and C.T. Studd and Paul and, you know, just all these people that have, have gone before us and walked this faith out and even even given their lives in, in, in horrible ways for this. And we are grateful that we have something worthy of dying for. We are grateful that your story is that powerful, that your story is the hope of the nations, that your story and your name is the hope of this world, that you are ultimately the only thing that will bring peace to this world, that all other efforts will be futile and just a band-aid. So we want to take that out to the nations. We want to ignite that in our hearts, Father God. I pray that you would do that in us, and that we would learn more, and we would walk more deeply in this, and understanding what our role is in it. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, we are going to...